it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. We have Mike Singleton, who is the Senior Research Analyst and founder of Invictus Research. He also has worked at Broad Run Investment Management, uh, Main Street Capital Corporation, T. Rowe Price. He has quite the resume. He graduated with uh, Department Honors at University of Notre Dame, where he studied finance and theology. He's also a CFA chart holder and CFA Society of Washington, D.C. So Mike is here to talk to us about some actually interesting stuff, so business cycles and macro. And yes, he's going to demystify it a little bit for us beginners and everybody else. So Mike, thank you very much for taking the time to come join us today. We really appreciate it. We're we're looking forward very much to talking to you today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Love the show. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it, Mike. Uh, Welcome. So can you start with the business cycles and macro? Maybe define what macro even means and then how business cycles tie into that? Yes, of course. Um, happy to do that. So when when I use the word macro, typically what I mean is the business cycle. And uh, ironically, I think that um, a lot of investors will acknowledge the existence of the business cycle without integrating it into their investment process. And in my opinion, that's a, a huge mistake because the business cycle uh, macro accounts for about 50% of price action. So if, you, if you're not integrating the business cycle into your process, uh, you're going to spend a lot of time sort of confused at why stocks are moving one way or the other. Uh, in terms of how we define the business cycle, uh, I would define it as having two constituent cycles, the growth cycle and the inflation cycle. 
And I think that should make sense to a lot of bottom-up fundamental investors because ultimately what drives business value? Uh, well, cash flow, right? Uh, and likewise, um, you know, or, or you could say growth, maybe cash growth. Um, and likewise, from the top down, uh, that's also what drives the business cycle. And you can break down growth into the real part and the part that's uh, coming from inflation, right? So growth and inflation, both cycle, there would drive real business activity. And that's what you need to get right if you're focused on the business cycle. And that's what we spend a lot of our time studying at Invictus. That makes sense. Does does one drive the other? I kind of get the sense that you, that's kind of the idea. And then is there a way we could visualize it for people who are on the... Yeah, well, they are they are both related and they have you know similar drivers to some extent. And the way I think about visualizing uh, them is as a sine curve. So if you remember from... Uh, you know, trigonometry the sine curve just looks like, uh, you know, a wave going up and down, you know, sort of peaking and then troughing and then peaking and then troughing. And uh, that, that's exactly what the growth cycle looks like. That's what the inflation cycle looks like. Um, uh, we have a, a, a macro handbook on our website that sort of goes over the principles of our process. And one of the first slides is the growth cycle and the inflation cycle over time. And you can see the, the trends, the up and the down over and over again for the last 50 years. And it's really, really obvious. Would you say we're in an inflation cycle now and like what characterizes an inflation cycle? What does it do to businesses? So that's a, that's a great question. And I think that um, how you interpret growth and inflation is just as important as understanding uh, that they are the two most important uh, macro variables. Uh, when you're looking at growth and inflation, you really want to make sure that you're looking at the rate of change of growth and inflation, right? So it's not whether growth or inflation are high or low. What really matters in terms of forecasting asset market returns is whether they're getting better or worse. You know, it doesn't matter. So, um, you know, for example, it doesn't really matter to the stock market that growth is high if it's about to crash. Right. Uh, what matters is that it's, like I said, getting getting better or worse. Um, same with inflation. So right now um, we're actually of a view that we're about to enter sort of a deflationary uh, macro, macro, macroeconomic regime. So that means that the rate of change of growth is going down and the rate of change of inflation is going down, right? And I, the growth part, I think, maybe has become a little bit more obvious for people over the last, uh, call it month or so. January was a very bad month for stocks and it's you know come back a little bit since February. But obviously when stocks start to go down fast, people start to realize like, oh, maybe growth, <laughs> maybe growth is going down. Um, but it's, it's, it's fairly obvious when you think about it because um, in 2020, the entire world sort of stood still, right, with the lockdowns. And so you saw GDP go negative 9%. Uh, in 2021, you had the reopening, right? So you were comping against, uh, you know, the, the easiest comps in the history of the world. You're, you're never going to comp against a completely, uh, you know, standstill economy again. So obviously, the reopening print was very, very high. You saw 12.2% growth. Now in 2022, we're comping against that 12.2% uh, growth. And obviously, we're not going to see you know, a, a growth like that again, because that's uh, just far beyond what our economy can produce. Um, so real quick, just comping means we were at a really low point. So to improve on that was really easy because it was so low the year before. Right. So another way of describing it is uh, called a base effect. A base effect is the um, impact that a reference point has on any measurement. So uh, if you calculate the year-over-year -year rate of change as um, you know, 2022 growth over 2021 growth, the impact that 2021 growth has in the denominator is the impact of the base effect, right? So 
you know, you, you're, you saw very fast growth, um, part of it artificial because of the lockdowns in 2021. Um, but that's, that's just going to be an impossible comp. So you're seeing declining growth against that. You're seeing, you know, fiscal drag because we're not going to see the same level of stimulus that we saw last year. There's no impetus for it. There's no emergency. There's certainly not the political will, right? Um, you know, the, the, the consumer likewise isn't going to be getting the, um, getting the same handouts from the government. Um, you know, the debt and eviction moratoriums are set to expire. So the more money people are paying, you know, servicing their debt or, um, you know, paying their rent, the less they're spending on other stuff. And so that'll be a drag on consumer spending. Uh, likewise, you know, if you, any measure of business spending that you would track, any of the regional Fed surveys, any of the PMIs, they're all declining. Um, so that's the three parts of, of growth, right? The consumer business and the government, all three are going down at the same time. It's really hard to imagine, uh, you know, growth going up when all three of its constituent parts are going down. And yeah, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And the second part about inflation is, is probably a little less uh, obvious because we're, you know, obviously we're seeing CPI prints above 7%. CPI is coming out tomorrow again for the month of January. You know, the consensus for that is 7.3%. Uh, you know, I don't really have a, a, you know, a differentiated view on that. Uh, I think it's very likely that you'll start to see 7% start to become, you know, 6.5%, 6%, um, over the coming months. And, you know, the reasons that we think that are, you know, I think, re- re- you know, very reasonable. So uh, there are a bunch of leading indicators that we look at for inflation. For example, you could look at the Baltic Dry Index, which is a measure of shipping costs. That's down 75% from its peak in October. Um, you can look at the prices paid and received from the different regional Fed surveys. A lot of businesses are saying, look, things are still getting more expensive, but they're not getting as they're not getting expensive as fast as they used to. And that means slower rate of change, right? It means that supply constraints are easing. Unfilled orders, the, the fusion indexes for unfilled orders and uh, supplier delivery times are both going down. That means that supply chains are are normalizing. A lot of the uh, stimulus-induced demand that was driving higher inflation is also going to run off because, you know, for the same reasons that growth is slowing down, um, that'll also drive slower inflation because people just aren't buying as much stuff. If you look at the rate of uh, year-over-year rate of change in commodity prices, those are also going down. So you put all those things together, and you can get a pretty good idea that the rate of change of inflation is also going to slow down over the coming months. As a finance nerd, you would assume that I have my money game all together. Well, shocker, I didn't. Until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all of your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product. They release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. 
After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, that 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 totally makes a lot of sense. So how, uh, you know, I, I have... Uh, I was recently listening to the PayPal earnings call and they kind of highlighted that in their call. One of the things that the CEO said was that they were noticing in their lower income cohort that those people were spending less money than they were six months, a year ago. And I think that really kind of illustrates what you're saying about the stimulus, for example, is kind of worked. It's is working its way out of the economy and, and it's going to start affecting businesses and they're going to see lower, they're going to see lower rates of growth for PayPal in particular, but it's going to filter into other aspects of the economy as well. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's definitely true. And, you know, I, I could go into the longer term impact of, of wealth equality on, wealth inequality on growth uh, and inflation, but that's definitely, that's definitely true, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just that p- people with less money spend less money as a percentage of their net worth. Right. And so it doesn't circulate as quickly through the economy. Right. Yeah. That, that totally makes sense. So you said something in, in the video that I watched earlier that I thought was interesting. And I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that. COVID had an impact on inflation and I don't think that people really put together why that is. Could you, could you kind of lay that out for us? Yes. Um, it's a, it's a big, it's a big question. And I guess I'll try and answer it in three parts. There's a supply side to inflation and there's a demand side to inflation. Right. And so on the supply side, think about um, supply chains, right? They were disrupted because they were shut down really quickly and then reopened really quickly. And that's disruptive, right? It creates problems mm-hmm. on the demand side. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just what it sounds like. How much demand it, Inflation is you know, the intersection of the supply and demand for goods and services, right? When supply of goods and services goes down, um, that increases price. If demand goes up, that also increases price. Um, so on the one hand, you had you know, huge supply shock. On the demand side, you had um, tons of fiscal stimulus, right, which increased demand, particularly from lower income cohorts, right? And that got, um, you know, that got inflation really buzzing. I think that the... the the federal deficit as a percentage of GDP was maybe 15% in 2020. And, uh, you know, stimulus in 2021 was significant as well. And uh, that, that was really the difference between the stimulus uh, following the great financial crisis and the stimulus following COVID is that, um, you know, QE and all of, all of the monetary stimulus, um, you know, from 2009 to 2011 was, uh, largely largely financial in nature, right? So not very much of it got into the hands of people. It was in the banking system. And uh, to get inflation, you have to have some sort of transmission mechanism from getting it out of the banking system and into the hands of people who can spend the money, right? And this time, it didn't just stay in the banking system. Uh, it was, you know, went out through PPP and it was also, um, you know, lent out uh, through massive fiscal stimulus, right? So 
the two ways that banking money can become real economy money is either through the treasury spending it or through banks lending it out. And this time you saw both, which is not, you know, the last time you didn't see that. And that was the difference in the inflation response. That's why you're seeing 7% inflation prints now. And you, you know, I think it topped out at two and a half or 3% last cycle. So do you think that, uh, do you think those kinds of forces will, are causing uh, the inflation to, I guess, spike up and spike down, if you will, quicker than maybe it has in the past I, you know, I, i'm an uh, i'm the oldest one in the room so i do remember the 80s and i do remember inflation being really really high in the 80s so that seemed like that was a much longer period of time that inflation uh impacted everything where this feels like it's going to be a, a sharper a sharper up and down right well that's certainly uh our view at invictus is that this is a. Uh, you know, transitory is a word that's sort of been abused. <laughs> yeah, It's important to define your terms, I think, when you're talking about transitory. So what I mean, what I mean when I say transitory um, isn't that inflation is going to go to 2% anytime soon, because I don't think that it will. I think it'll trend toward 2%. In other words, we're not going to see, um, you know, 70 style, you know, runaway inflation where it's, you know, going double digits for sort of multiple business cycles in a row. Um, and, and the reason for that is like you said, the last big inflation was sort of in the, in, you know, in the seventies and ended with Volcker in the eighties. And, uh, the economy is very different now than it was back then. And, uh, the, the reason we've seen the secular disinflation is sort of a hand, handful of factors. Um, you know, one is aging demographics, right? The country is much older now. Fertility rates are lower. The average age of the citizen is, is, is older. Um, federal debt, having a high national debt is, uh, deflationary, it's disinflationary. We've obviously spent a lot of money since 1980. Um, our national and our national debt is much higher. You know, the, the world has become much more globalized in terms of uh, global supply chains. Um, you know, the, the dollar system has strengthened. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, basically, we're able to get cheaper goods and cheaper labor from abroad than we are, you know, with, within America. So that's also deflationary. Technology is deflationary. And none of those things reversed with COVID, right? In fact, a lot of them were worse. We spent even more money, right? Which is a long-term drag on growth and inflation. Our demographics are even older. Fertility rates dropped in 2020 and 2021. Um, and, and obviously your past, so the population also got older. Um, so none of, none of those things have changed. Uh, what did change was this big spike in uh, fiscal spend. And that's unlikely to be repeated. Uh, so I think that the logical conclusion has to be if none of the drivers of disinflation have resolved and we're unlikely to see that thing that drives short-term inflation persist, then disinflation has to be sort of the ultimate outcome from there. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. 
I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Can we talk about maybe the impact to the stock market and not like where is the stock market going to be in 12 months? Obviously, nobody knows that. But more on like a high level general concept, we have two concepts. We have the inflation and the growth. And, you know, you, you mentioned they're tied to the business cycle. I guess I'm still, there's still a disconnect in my head of, of, you mentioned the sine curve going up and down. Are you, are you talking about like the top is growth, the bottom's inflation? Or are you talking about there's two different sine curves going and, and um, they could be going up or down at the, at the same time. And and how does that tie to the stock market? Um, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a good way of thinking about it. There's, there's two different sign curves. So you can have, inf- you know, inflation going up and real growth going down at the same time. Um, I mean, you could, you could think about it in terms of, you know, four different economic regimes or four different market regimes, right? So when growth is going up and inflation is going up, you call that a reflation right? If growth is going down, but inflation is going up, that's a stagflation. If they're both going down at the same time, that's a deflation. That's really how we think about it. Uh, is is there is there like lengths of time that those tend to be? Or are we talking about two sine curves that are just kind of completely random and, and the economy gets what it gets? Um, it's, it's a good question. So there's different cycle... There's different types of cycles. There's long-term debt cycles, which you, you know Ray Dalio writes about all the time that last 100 years. There's sort of um, intermediate-term debt cycles, which are also long, maybe 10 years, right? And then there's uh, the shorter-term business cycle, which tends to be about a year. And that's what we spend more time focused on and Victus, although it really helps to understand um, the longer-term cycles as well, because that puts the shorter-term cycles into perspective, right? Our view on inflation is very much informed by what's been driving the long-term trend in disinflation since 1980, right? And that's a 40-year trend. So I think to make an accurate call over the next you know, 12 months, you have to understand the last 40 years. So hopefully that helps. It does, yeah. Yeah, it does. So how 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 do investors, I guess, benefit or, I guess, become more defensive depending on the business cycle? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've spent a lot of time doing back tests. We just talked about the four different market regimes. We've back tested all of the major tradable assets, uh, sectors and style factors against those market regimes. So, and Victor, we, we, we pretty much know uh, what the historical precedent is for uh, asset performance through all of those different regimes. And that sets our expectations. And again, like much, so much of it is common sense, right? When, when growth and inflation are declining, Typically, defensive equity sectors outperform. Defensive style factors tend to outperform. And that makes sense because they're less sensitive to uh, the business cycle, right? You're not going to turn off your utilities or stop buying toilet paper or toothpaste because, you know, the rate of change of GDP declined. But uh, that very well could impact major discretionary purchases that you make, like a new kitchen in your home or buying a new car. Um, And so that's more, you know, we, we have... And again, in our free macro handbook, we have sort of a um, you know bigger back test. We have the, the back test listed on one of the pages, um, but that's how we think about it. And that doesn't mean that you know just because it's a deflation, you, you indiscriminately buy everything that's back tested while in that regime. 
because every mark every business cycle is incrementally different. So you have to make accommodation for that. But again, it's just sort of a way of setting your expectations. Could we so maybe if we looked at what you talked about and where we're talking about the seventies and the eighties with super high inflation. I'm I wasn't alive back then. I'm not like a historian or anything, but I do know enough about the fact that our economy was really tied to oil back then and oil prices kind of went out of control. And you fast forward to today and the biggest companies in the S&P 500, they're all technology companies. And you mentioned how technology is really deflationary. So would that be an example of the idea that you don't want to rely too heavily on you know, if something worked in the 70s or 80s doesn't mean it's going to work today because the economy could be completely different. Right. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely true. I mean, I think this, the, the 70s were sort of defined by low real growth and high inflation. So that was sort of a stagflationary market regime. Um, although, you know, this, the assets that performed well through the 70s stagflation are the same assets that perform well through the smaller, less severe stagflations that we've seen since then. It's just the, the scale is different. I guess how how do the how do these the shorter term business cycles fit into the narrative of a long term business cycle? Like, yeah, that, I, does, I can I can give it a shot. Okay. <laughs> so the way I think about it is that you have a trend growth in GDP, and then you have oscillations around trend growth, and that's the business cycle. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. So so trend growth is driven by two things essentially. One is growth in the labor force and the other is labor productivity. And that kind of makes sense, right? You know, trend GDP, if labor force growth is 2% and labor productivity is growing at 1%, then trend GDP should be 3%, right? It's, it's very logical. But, you know, human beings are sort of imperfect allocators of capital. They overinvest and then they underinvest, they overconsume and they underconsume. And so you get oscillations around that trend growth. And then on top of that, you have the credit cycle, uh, you know, the government, the government borrows, businesses borrow, people borrow, and the credit cycle uh, sort of amplifies that um, existing business cycle that's driven by you know, basically psychology and imperfect decision making. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah, it, it makes sense to me. Andrew, your thoughts? Yep. Okay. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. So uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the assets. So we're talking about the stock market primarily, but how does the bond market fit into this whole story of business cycles and and how that ebbs and flows as well? It's a it's a very good question. <laughs> it's a very good question. It's a it's a very big big question. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, can I go back to? Uh, the, 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 what I said about trend growth earlier, because I think that'll help put the bond market in, into context. Yeah, absolutely. So um, right now, most developed markets are seeing declining trend growth as a result of lower labor force growth, right? People are getting older, they're having fewer kids. So that's going to be a big headwind for growth in every, con- in every developed market country, including the United States. Um, and on top of that, uh, labor productivity growth has also declined. Um, from the 1980s. And I don't really have a good explanation for that. I've spent a lot of time looking it up. No one really knows why labor productivity has declined. But you have both constituents of long-term trend growth going down. So the bond market, let's say rates, right, the, the, the yields on government bonds, um, particularly long-term bonds, are driven by uh, two things, growth and term premium. But growth is the more important one. So 
um, the, the higher long-term trend growth, the higher uh, rates will be. So, you know, when demographics were much better earlier in America's history, rates were higher. And now that demographics are getting worse and, you know, the growth outlook is getting worse, rates are lower. Um, so, you know, as someone who's probably more interested in equities, and I tend to be a little more interested in equities myself, I spend a lot of time thinking about the bond market and what what it's signaling in terms of growth, um, because the bond market tends to be um, very sensitive to economic conditions, oftentimes more so than the equity market. And so if the bond market is signaling to us that you know growth is going to accelerate, that would be a, a good sign to get more risk on in your equity market positioning. And if the bond market is sort of flashing yellow lights and saying, hey, risk, uh, that would be a good sign to you know, shift your portfolio to large cap, to defensive sectors and style factors and, or, you know, raise cash. There's nothing wrong with raising cash. So you're talking about um, several ideas, basically kind of asset allocating type ideas. So maybe tie it all together, you know, for the average investor, somebody who's interested in learning about the macro, what kind of things do you advocate people incorporate that knowledge into their portfolio management? So I think, I think my number one advice would be uh, to try and understand the business cycle, right? Wall Street in general is very compartmentalized. And, you know, I had a lot of, you know, opportunity working for a broad run to go speak with some of the best investors on the street. And one of the things that I noticed is, first of all, there are tons of geniuses in Wall Street. And I don't mean that euphemistically. I mean, really geniuses, super smart people. But the other thing that I noticed is that Wall Street generally is very compartmentalized. You know, a research department has a technology guy and a commodities guy and an industrials guy. And I noticed that when these guys would get something wrong, it was generally not because they misunderstood the company or they were missing some small key detail. A lot of times they're getting things wrong because they would miss the forest for the trees, right? Because they would miss the business cycle. And, uh, like I, I think I was telling you guys earlier, the business cycle accounts for virtually you know, 50, 50% of price action. So, um, you know, no, no matter what kind of investor you are, no matter what your time horizon, understanding the business cycle helps. I mean, even if you're a buy and hold person, you know, it, it'll give you some idea of, you know, when to start buying the dip and or when to, to not buy the dip. Every decision that you make is sort of rife with business cycle and, and macro implications. So, um and besides that, the business cycle cares about you, even if you're <laughs> less interested in the business cycle. So uh, you may as well learn about it. And I know it's it's certainly been, you know, a wonderful benefit to my personal investing and to, uh, you know, my clients. Cool. Well, where can people go to find out more about that service and more about you? Uh, so the best place to find those things is Invictus-Research. The second best place is probably my Twitter account. Uh, and the handle is at Invictus Macro. Mike, we really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come talk to us and kind of educate us more about the business cycles and the ins and outs of that. And uh, uh, you, you really know your stuff. And I learned a lot today. So I appreciate you taking the time and come and talk to us. My pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day.
The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and/or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at eInvestingForBeginners.com.